So I like a I like a nice little cold open. Yeah, I don't know, too. are you into cold opens? But you can't do cold opens, John Bachman, of Newsmax fame, like the king of Newsmax, as you're known colloquially amongst um, me and my friends and my colleagues. Did you, did you know that, that that is one of your nicknames? Yeah. I didn't know yeah. that. But, I, but the, feelings, the feelings mutual with, with everyone over in your circle of friends. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You know, we were chatting a little bit before I hit record about um, the apocalypse, the end of the world, our good friend, Carl Higby, um, and all the ways that those themes kind of play in together. And, you know, I've, I feel really grateful that you've had me on Newsmax before to sort of, well, I guess we tried to debate the AI thing. It was a um, setup from the beginning, Kay. I, it, was, it was all a plan. It was all <laughs> in my plan. Yes. Well, okay. Explain the plan to me. So what was the plan? What are your big thoughts and feelings? This is long form, so you don't have to give well, me like, you know, it's, it's funny because when you first started posting this stuff about ChatGPT, I had just started to play with it. Um, and I'm fascinated by artificial intelligence, always have been ever since I watched Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey and the infamous scene, open the pod bay doors, Hal. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I've always been pretty into technology, but also weary of and weary of what, uh, you know, you get tired of it. And I think it's very concerning now when the technology starts to get out in front of people. Um, so, you know, I wrote, I read your piece. The first part I obviously latched onto was your very uh, adroit point that most people don't like journalists. It's <laughs> true. But I, you know, I was kind of taught to, to believe that's a badge of honor. Journalism isn't supposed to be about being popular. It's about holding the powerful accountable. Um, but uh, Today's modern journalists are disliked for another reason. It's because a lot of them are like artificial intelligence. You hear the same talking points, the same kind of stock lines. The stories are the same a lot of the times. And, and my belief is that a lot of this work is done to appease that class of individuals, the Washington Press Corps, as opposed to um, wider audience writ large in the United States. Uh, but your piece on AI, I, you know, I, I, I read that and I thought, well, if if Kay kind of turned inward and thought about herself, how unique she is and how, you know, there's a lot of people like your colleague, Brianna Lyman, there's, you know, there's just, you develop these, you know, kind of niches in the journalism space and robots can't do that unless there's some person telling them to do so. So I, I think there are, and there are certain people who will fall to the wayside from AI, but certain people like yourself who, and, and Brianna who can, can create these individual personalities that people will come back to what people really want is um authenticity i think and you can't get that from a robot so uh, you know i thought your piece was provocative and interesting and i really just wanted to talk to you about it and we had that segment every tuesday where we're supposed to debate somebody so i just wanted to prove you wrong that you're not going to be replaced by ai not all journalists will be replaced by ai but you know it was just kind of an excuse to get you on the show and have a have an interesting interesting conversation Oh, well, thank you. And it was a really interesting conversation. I did feel incredibly duped um, and far too complimented. So um, I'll put a link to that in the description and everyone should go down and watch it and compliment me as well. That would be really nice because um, it's kind of funny, right? Like I've been a writer my entire life. You know, I think anyone who's got an interest in nonfiction data or nonfiction anything um, has that kind of writer communicator in them. And, you know, as, as the years have gone by, I've worked with a lot of different news outlets and I've been on both sides of the kind of political spectrum, definitely. Yeah. Um, 
But because I do all of my work out here in the States, I don't do it back in the UK. You know, my mom, I think, was out here visiting when we did the debate and it hadn't really like registered to her the sort of like magnitude of being on Newsmax, getting to have those conversations. So it was kind of funny in that, you know, like we sort of like wrapped up our conversation. She was just like, who was that man being really nice to you? And I was just like, that's uh, the king of Newsmax. Like, she's like, Newsmax. And I was just like, yeah, it's like one of the top uh, ranked, rated and watched news outlets in the country. And I think what I like most about what I've seen from not just you, but Carl and everyone I've also met on the sort of back end of Newsmax, all the people who come together to make uh, the news programs that you guys play just every day. It's just so good. Screw DirecTV. Um, but there seems, you're, you're people of your words. Uh, and so there isn't really that just boilerplate homogeneity that comes out in all of your reporting. And there is a lot of personality. Um, how do you kind of balance the fact that there is such a proliferation of news and there is such a limit on the data. How do you balance that with the way that you kind of like communicate your stories in such a different way? Cause I've tried to do the social and like linguistic math on this and I can't figure out what you guys are doing. So there's gotta be some like secret sauce in there. I, I don't think, I don't think it's a secret as much as it is sort of like a, a perseverance and the will to kind of push through it. And that's one of the things that I, you know, I got out of local news. I worked in local news for about eight years before I came to Newsmax. And that was all that was be, there was so much corporate consolidation in local news. It just I would a lot of our directives would come from a corporate office a thousand miles away. They didn't really have a feel for the local community. And the reason why I left is because I was not able to tell the stories that I was hearing as a reporter, I, the, the, the stories that they wanted me to tell. We're, we're a corporate mandate kind of thing. And that's never been my experience here at Newsmax. And uh, the freedom and the flexibility to talk about the issues that I'm talking about off my show with my audience is, you know, really empowering, I think. Um, and I, there is, it, it, it's weird because I think people want a certain familiarity with their news and they get kind of lulled into a complacency with that when, um, when I think if you if you can kind of get past that with an audience, they really do want to be challenged and ask questions and think about things in a different way. And so that's what I'm always trying. I mean, people call me a contrarian. Some people say I'm difficult. Some people say I'm a pain in the ass. But I'm really I'm just trying. I'm trying to tell a different story than everybody else is telling. And that's and that's kind of where I start from every day. There obviously is you know as a newsman that you have you're compelled to cover certain things, um, but you know. This is this this is a period of disruption in the, in the media industry, and I, I hope to be a part of that disruption because look at the you know public approval ratings uh, for the news industry right now. It's lower than used car salesmen, yet so many people want to continue doing the same thing with news, talking about the same stuff. It's the definition of insanity. So that's really where I start from: is just how do we be different? How do we provide some sort of differentiated content that people can't get anywhere else? So they're going to come to us, you know, in addition to all the other stuff you kind of have to do with news, the basic information you have to provide for people, but finding those little avenues uh, and areas that people aren't talking so much about. The other thing I think it's not really a secret sauce. It's just look at this train derailment story in Ohio, how little the media cares about flyover country in America. I mean, this East Palestine, Ohio is only 55 miles from Pittsburgh, which is a pretty big media market. Um, it's like 75 miles from Cleveland, another pretty big media market. 
but you know, if it's not in Main Street, Washington D.C., or New York City, or something like that, it's just really hard to get the the media's attention. So here we are, 13 days after this train derailment, you finally get the EPA administrator showing up. I mean, and that is and that is media pressure that actually kind of forced that to happen a little too late. But um, so going back to what your question was, where does this stuff come from? I, I just think it's you know, what are people not talking about? Who Who's not being reached in this country? Who's not being spoken? You know, um, who, who who is the media not speaking with? Because I think most of the conversations the media has is speaking down to people um, from from their ivory towers in Washington and New York. I could not agree more. And I also just saw, you know, um, this this interview probably won't be released for another couple of weeks or so. Um, but I'm glad that we're talking about it now um the east palestine sort of train derailment i also just saw that biden is refusing like fema's refusing all the disaster relief funds um that the region hasn't met the requirements and i'm like well how do you meet the requirements if the epa has only just shown up oh you mean that same epa who 10 days ago 13 days ago was saying like no it's not a big deal um but that's sort of like to one side. I hope that by the time this episode comes out, I can sort of like share an update underneath that these people are getting the help that they need. Um, But I think you really struck on more of like a macro point and something that I'm really interested to learn about you as an individual. Um, You clearly have um, like just a natural proclivity for patriotism um, in your work, which again, I think is pretty rare. You know, you and I are both surrounded I think I feel really lucky by the journalists I'm surrounded by on sort of a day-to-day basis um they don't seem to be like you know climbing up the social ladder just looking for celebrity but that's it's also a very small group of people and you know my mentors have even said to me it's like if you're looking to be famous there's a tech like there's 20 30 other things that you need to do to get there and none of which you're doing and I'm like great I don't want that so that's perfect but um what is it do you think that like maybe if you can just shed some light on, you know, what got you into journalism, what sort of drives you, not just from the sense of like finding those stories that aren't being told, but was there like something maybe prior to you joining this field that sort of instigated that? Like what's your, um, what they call it in like superhero movies? Oh, my origin story? Yeah, there's like another word or like a rosebud, is that it? I'll tell you my origin story if if you promise not to refer to me as a superhero or make any kind of superhero references because- Okay, uh, good. I don't know any, so that's fine. Okay, good, good. I'm not really a superhero person and I'm certainly not, but um, you know, it, it had been a childhood ambition for me to be a- a journalist. And it started, actually, I was in a fifth grade school play, and I played a sports reporter. And um, it was just like three or four lines. And I, you know, reported on this game, it was part of the play. Um, The the, the short synopsis of the play is, a class has to learn all the presidents before the football team can play in this game in the big game. And so they, the whole school learns all the presidents, the football team plays in the game and they win. It's a big happy story, but I played the sports reporter giving the updates on the score. And one of our neighbors at the time was, was the meteorologist at a TV station in Atlanta. And he said, Hey, you know, you're a natural, maybe you want to come down and um, hang out with the sports reporters at the TV station. And I jumped at the chance to do so. Um, I went on a weekend, a Saturday evening, 
there was a, a the sports anchor was a guy named Stu Kleitenik, who was probably like in his young 30s at the time, total stud. I mean, he was on the phone the entire time. If he wasn't reporting sports, he was talking to some young lady he was, you know, trying to go out with. And I was I just thought this guy was 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 I was like, this is the perfect job. He's talking about sports, he's watching TV, he's got time to go out with the ladies on the weekend. I'm 12 years old and I and I say, you know, I want to be a sports anchor. Yeah. So, and I was a big baseball fan, a big Atlanta Braves fan. Um and I was going to a lot of Braves games. I thought this is why I can get paid to cover sports. This would be fantastic. So I pursued that for a little while as a kid, kind of a dream, you know, calling in the, to um, call in sports shows and pretending like you're an adult asking serious questions like, oh, what do you think so-and-so's batting average is going to be? And then um, I got a little bit older and ESPN came around and local sports was dying. I didn't really have an interest in covering national sports. I just wanted to cover Atlanta sports. And um, by that time, I was a little bit older I think I was in college and I had a meeting with some of my mentors that worked in sports at the time and they said look if you're pursuing a career in local news you might want to think about something other than sports because they're keep cutting back our time not even sure lo local sports is going to be a thing ESPN can cover these events before we can so maybe think about something else and at that point Newt Gingrich was my congressman I had developed an interest in politics because he was very accessible to our community great retail politicker my dad has always been a very conservative person. And we were listening to Rush Limbaugh on the radio all the time in the 1990s. The Monica Lewinsky scandal happens. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, and so I, I, I was kind of fascinated by politics and having access to Newt Gingrich. My, our high school baseball coach, my varsity baseball coach, was also um, our AP and honors government teacher in the high school. And he would invite Newt Gingrich to come speak to our class. And he was the speaker of the house at the time. And you'd be shocked, Kay, like, seven or eight people would show up to the library to hear the speaker of the house talk. And, you know, this is before the celebrity, you know, celebrity yeah. politician era. Mm -hmm. um, but he would sit there and talk to us for like 40 minutes about the constitution and, and everything like that. And I've always, I mean, I've always loved this country. I, my parents are conservative Catholic. We grew up watching Ronald Reagan on TV. I remember the challenger disaster and the speech he mm -hmm. gave. I'm seven years old. My mom's crying and you just can feel the compassion of this man and my dad revered Ronald Reagan. And um, that kind of set the tone for my conservative. And then having access to Newt Gingrich later in life, I was like, yeah, I'm a conservative. Yeah, hardcore. Um, I remember I remember talking with my baseball coach and my government teacher. We were talking about the Clinton. This is, this is 1998, my senior year, the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. And I would be like, you know, coach, I know there's certain things we can't talk about in this classroom setting, but I wanted to ask you, is it okay for the president to lie under oath? You know, and we could have those kind of robust discussions on that. And he was an admitted died in the wool Southern Democrat. He he made no, you know, didn't try to hide his politics, but he encouraged us to develop our own politics. And then I went to college and I kind of convinced myself I'm going to be a, you know, I'm going to be Peter Jennings or one of these, you know, guys. And I, I just, I pursued that path, went from college, spent like four months working for Apple computer, which is maybe a topic for another podcast I can tell you about, which was very cool. But then wow. I offered my first job in Augusta, Georgia, um, doing the whole one man band shooting my stuff and everything like that. And I, I moved there and quickly got into local politics. And Augusta, it was just so interesting because you had all this kind of racial tension that had been simmering ever since the civil rights era. The whole entire county government in Augusta, Richmond County at that time had been driven, kind of gerrymandered to provide five <clears throat> black congressional districts. Um, commission districts and five white commission districts. And there was one mayor who was basically a tie-breaking vote on all these issues. Um, 
and it didn't work well, but it kind of worked. And I learned the inner workings of politics. And I remember there was a, a time when the there was a budget deficit in the city of Augusta and the, the mayor at the time had gotten a bunch of new furniture. And I thought it was weird. And we did a story about it. We also did a story about these picture frames they were giving out at every city commission meeting for like, you know, Little League team, congratulations. And I, I looked up how much money it was costing and I just kind of did a story. How can we spend thousands of dollars on picture frames when the, you know, the, the government's running a massive deficit? And um, anyway, I, you know, I did the story. It was kind of a, a pain in the ass for the city commissioners. Um, and then, but when I, I left Augusta, I had some really good contacts, including the mayor at the time it was a guy named Bob Young, who was a, a conservative. And, um, you know, I, he, he called me and he said, do you want to go get a beer before you leave town? I'd love to talk to you. Um, and, you know, I was a reporter. He was a mayor. He didn't really know my political beliefs. I didn't really know his that well. Um, but he told me, you know, it's like, I really appreciated, John, you doing those stories about the way the, the government was spending money. He's like, off the record, I can say this now because it's years down the line. Mm. He's like, as, as the mayor, there are certain things you just have to swallow to to for, for the greater good. And those were two things I really didn't like. I don't like us spending the money. He's like, and, and by you doing that, you know, it helped you know, kind of alleviate the pressure on me and raise awareness to the fact that we should not be spending these this money. He's like, so, you know, fight the good fight, pursue it. And he kind of patted me on the back and sent me on my way. And I actually have this thing. I don't know if I can get it off the wall, but it's, he gave this to me before I left. It was, it's one of those plaques kind of as a joke. And um, so lovely. He, he, he named me the commissioner of golf for <laughs> um, which I thought this might get me into the masters at some point, but I have not, I have not been able to get back to that yet so not there, yet not yet not, not yet anyway but i am i am still the commissioner of golf i have that <laughs> for me so but yeah and that and and the, the great thing about and this is what happened this way used to be in this business is you would start in a small town mm-hmm. and you would learn about middle america and the challenges that people face and not big cities and um sometimes the challenges are the same but nowadays people skip over that. And I learned so many important lessons in a small town, um, you know, that that helped me every single day when, you know, a lot of, again, going back to our kind of original talk, a lot of the news just, just, you know, it doesn't represent America. And, um, and I think people forget about small towns and that's really the lifeblood of this country. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more, you know, one of the things that I bring up uh, with a lot of my colleagues who live and work in DC, all my friends in Los Angeles and New York, it's like, as soon as you get out of these cities, no one, no one gives a shit about Twitter. Um, You know, no one really cares about what goes on. What they care about is how they wake up and how they go to bed and that space in the middle and whether they're fed, warm and safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing too, Kay, like I, you know, I'm a product. I went to, with the exception of one or two years, I can't remember. I think it was just one year when I went to a Catholic, a Catholic elementary school, I've been in public school my entire life, um, public elementary school, except for one year, public middle school, public high school, public university. And, you know, people are really concerned about schools now. And I don't, it, you know, it's a, it's a struggle for a lot of parents, including my wife and I is we just don't feel like public schools are good enough. And if, if you have, and we consider ourselves, you know, a luxury that we can send our oldest daughter to, to um, private school, our middle son is homeschooled, but you know, these are the things that used to be 
non-negotiable. Everyone in this country is, has a right to a free public education. It used to be that way. The public schools have been co-opted by a lot of this leftist, leftist ideology. And so, you know, it might not be like a, a right-left thing, but Americans, I think, are really waking up to the fact that our public schools have been co-opted. And that's another concern that isn't necessarily a political thing. It's just a basic common sense, you know, thing in this country that's, that we're losing sight of, which is causing, I think, a political realignment in this country. So one of the things, let's stick on education for a minute. My, my follow-up question um, was going to be sort of what are your big concerns, but um, like since you brought up education, let's like stick with this for a second. Um, I work with a group called Million Voices, um, the founder of which is a guy called John Graves, who is just like, he's a constitutional lawyer um, I think he's a pastor and he's a, oh my gosh, there's the three of things. He's a lawyer. Yeah. He's a lawyer. He's a pastor. And then there's something else that he is. And I can't remember what he's it an is. overachiever. It sounds like, and you know what? He's the nicest guy. He's like you, he's one of those people where like, if you saw a photograph of him or if you saw him on TV, you'd be like, oh, I bet, you know, like mm-hmm. he's untouchable and like unapproachable and, you know, probably lives in like you know, a massive house, that kind of thing. And then, you know, you sit down with him. And I've noticed this about a lot of the, like, particularly the men that I'm lucky enough to learn from, spend time with, work around, like the most down to earth people and understand real America far more than from what I see from our elected officials. Um, But one of the things that, you know, I noticed in a lot of the articles that John's company is or nonprofit is pushing out right now is that on a kind of local individual level, um, America is absolutely rejecting a lot of these educational agendas. And now some of this data is definitely taken from polls. And I have my own like qualms with polls. I think they're an inherently limited form of like data collection. Um, They're also sort of you know, methodologically questionable. But at the end of the day, if that's the data that we've got and it's, you know, finding still significant results, you know, in rejecting the whole like trans movement in school, I think there's going to be a huge backlash this year against social media and um, people, you know, allowing that. Like, how do you allow your kids to use social media? I ask all my friends this and it's it's 50 50 either way. Yeah, no, we, um, my daughter's only 11, so we have been absolutely no social media with that. And we actually just about three weeks ago took all their devices away. So no, with the exception of my oldest daughter, who's still allowed to use her iPad because she has to at night for homework sometimes. Mm -hmm. But what everything that we've been able to get her off of her iPad and onto a regular laptop to sit down in one location and just do her homework and get up. It's like it's like taking a pass away, pacifier away from a baby. It's, it was very hard for like a week, um, but the difference is night and day. You know, oh, really, we can go out to dinner now with our kids, and they engage us in conversation. I have no doubt that this stuff is like digital heroin. Mm-hmm. And um, I watched my son, who's six, the other day. He was sitting on the couch playing with an etch a sketch, and the and he was just in heaven. I mean, the oh. sheer and, and as a parent, yeah. The safety you feel knowing that that thing is not connected to the internet, it's just like you you feel like you have providence over your own child, which is so, it's rare. I mean, it's just so scary as a parent nowadays to think about this stuff because, you know, look at some of the stats on this. It's like one, one out of every four kids under the age of 10 has been exposed to internet porn. And, oh it, you know, it, it's just, 
we're not doing a good enough job of protecting kids in this country. And, you know, I think it's something very basic for parents can do. I know it's hard. I've been through it, but like, you've got to take these devices away from your kids. Not all the time. You know, you can have some fun as long as you're there monitoring with them. I, um, but you, you just got to cut. And, and my kids are outside. We live in Florida. So it's wintertime. They can go outside, but kids need to be outside. Kids need to be mm-hmm. playing outside, playing in the dirt, playing with bugs, playing sports, falling down, getting hurt, making mistakes. They come running inside there you know, whatever, but you pat them on the head, it's going to be okay. You know, it's, it's, it's really a shame that we've gotten away from that as, as a civilization. Um, and you, you hear about kids developing like different, you know, evolutionary kind of things because their, their heads are looking down all the time, yeah. they have super strength thumbs, you know, it's just, it's I mean, scary. Yeah. Happening. They say that we're going to develop like an extra joint in our thumbs to accommodate yeah. for this stuff. And no, I'm like, you know, What's, yeah. It's terrifying, but um, just fine. I, I, mm-hmm. My my, I got enough joints working. Yeah, you know? me too. Me too. I mean, mine are actually. I can't touch my toes. Everyone's always surprised when I tell yeah. them. They're very inflexible. Yeah. Um, but- we used to have this every in in public school. A lot of kids will, you know, that a lot of my peers will remember this. We had this thing called the Presidential Fitness Medal. That I was had a version of that. Yeah. Yeah. You had to do a certain number of pull-ups. You had to run a mile in less than like seven minutes or seven and a half minutes or something, but you had to also do the sit and reach. I never got it because I couldn't, I couldn't sit and reach far enough. No I'm way. Long, I'm a very long-legged person. So, you know, nowadays it would probably have some sort of compensation because of my, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever, it's, but, it's, uh, it's probably got some kind of designated like disability on it now. I'm the same. I always like to joke that I'm all leg and no torso. Yes. Like I'm five foot four and spent 25 years in the modeling industry. Like that's not like I wasn't supposed to do that. And I'm like, yeah, but I got really long legs. So I look taller in photos. Most <laughs> people when they meet me in person like, oh, wow, you're, you're much taller than I thought because I'm six three. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that's because when I'm sitting down at the anchor desk, all you see is my torso. I'm like 70% <laughs> legs under the desk and like 30% torso <laughs> above the desk. That's fantastic. I mean, I don't know. I think you look tall, but you also have like a very calming yet commanding presence, which is why I think, you know, it's a big part of the reason I even started. Well, actually you brought up baseball earlier. I think Aubrey Huff is the one who talked to me into first getting uh-huh. Newsmax. I don't, you know, as soon as I'm done with work, I don't want to know what's going on in the world. It's all too scary. Yeah. Um, especially when you work in it. Well, I guess then that's my next question. So there are like, you know, aside from everything that's going on in education, I mean, it's like we threw a bowl full of like terror spaghetti at the wall and it's all stuck right now in the world. Um, We've got, you know, the AI stuff that we've talked about, that seems to be a threat. Um, There's uh, climate change, which I think we're going to have to do a whole separate conversation on that at some point in the future, because... I'll send you an article that I actually just wrote today about a new Apple TV show that's going to be coming out uh, next month. I managed to get a screener of it and there's an embargo so no one else can write about it, but I'm not part of that. So I managed to. And it is the greatest piece of woke Hollywood sort of propaganda on the climate that I have ever seen. And I think when it does get released, it's going to be, um, I I would, I think the, your commentary on it is going to be like, I don't know. It's just one of those situations where I can't give you the login, but I wish I could give you the login information yes. today. I, I, so I you can watch it and just give me feedback on this because it really is this sort of very dystopian leftist viewpoint. Like the, it's a piece of fiction, right? The show, but it's, uh, 
it's based on this very limited understanding of one aspect of what we think is happening with the climate. It's one very small aspect. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this stuff is based on the last 40 years. You yeah. Know? And it doesn't include the historical cycles of the climate. I love to talk about the climate and living in Florida and yes. paying attention to how much money is spent on beach erosion and stuff like that. Most of these th issues are man-made problems. The mm -hmm. way the inlets are dredged causes the beach erosion a lot of times. Um, and it's mismanagement of water. We do have encroachment of the ocean. We also have overdevelopment in low-lying areas a lot of times. So by all means, let's have a conversation about it because it's something we have to address. Like in the state yeah. of Florida, we're spending millions and millions of dollars every year mitigating the effects of what people assume is climate change. And it very well may be climate change, but it could also very well may be you shouldn't be developing condos in this in this part of the world. I mean, Houston, Texas is a great example of where the zoning laws are very lax and people have built in communities in low-lying areas where they should not be building homes. When you had that flooding years ago, you know, those you could argue those houses shouldn't have been there. So yeah. and then people say, oh, it's a once in a lifetime, billions of dollars of damage. Well, the reason why they didn't have billions of dollars of damage when they had the same storm 300 years ago is because, you know. People weren't there. People weren't there. So <laughs> anyway. Yeah, um, well, know, the people, I think, really do get so conflated between this sort of like concept of climate change and just living in. We don't teach, we don't teach history anymore yeah. in this country. Well, we don't so even people, study history anymore as a country. Like, we don't study any historical yeah. trends either uh, of science. If anyone looks at this, this cycle, I mean, it was in the 1970s, 60 Minutes was doing reports on us entering, entering an ice age. Mm -hmm. you know, a new ice age, that was, all this, that was all the concern back then. Um, so anyway, uh, the whole, th there's a climate industry and yes. that's what it supports. You know, the this movie is part of it all the freaks that go to Davos and talk about the climate after flying there on the private planes. You know, nobody criticizes all the celebrities that, that left the Super Bowl. I was reading a story like 200 private planes left the Super Bowl. You know, nobody complains about that. No. And it's, no. it's funny. And I think the reason that no one complains about it is, uh, and I was just having, like I, uh, we were chatting before, like I just had a conversation with um, Graham Hancock from the ancient apocalypse series about that. You know, Graham and I have, a lot of the same colleagues and work in the same fields. And my undergraduate degree was very much in the science that he spent the last 30 years writing and researching about as a journalist. So it's kind of cool to come together on this yeah. stuff, especially since he's a Brit and Brits are traditionally were raised pretty secular, which I'm not anymore. Um, you know, I found my faith when I was still living in the UK, but it took moving out here to be like, oh, I'm finally around like my people kind of thing. Um, but we're also very much i think publicly there's an issue in britain in the same way there is in the us where um you know all of the major progressive politicians are pushing this one concept of macro climate change you know the weather's going to warm up the ice caps are going to melt sea levels going to rise the gulf stream's going to be cut off and then we're all going to die um, and that's what leads to the next ice age. And that is one of like about eight different theories. It's the one with, yeah, there's like a fair amount of evidence to back it up. There's actually more evidence to suggest that the last mini ice age that we went through was actually caused by a vulnerability that we have in our place in the cosmos, because every year we travel through this huge meteor stream called uh, the Torrids, which again, Graham details really well in the show, but 
what's interesting to me is that all of the money on like like you absolutely nailed it and i was like hoping that we could get to like the economy and the corruption of all of these different things education as well um but there's a lot of money that can be made and has been made since I would say like an inconvenient truth came out. Um, and the show that I was talking about is actually made by the same guy. Um, and an inconvenient truth, you know, I think was a really great documentary that explained one theory of what's happening to the planet. And in the, you know, 20 years since it came out, most of the evidence in it you know, it's just not, it's just not as strong, you know, when you look at it, yeah, from like a macro perspective, but because there's so much money in it, who cares? And if we are going to get, you know, blown out of the sky, like the dinosaurs, or, you know, potentially like precursory civilizations before the one we're in right now, um, with this kind of cyclical trend of us just being bombarded with these huge rocks from the middle of space, um, you know, there's, there's no money in that. There's no glory in that. There's no glamour in that. And if that is going to be what causes the next major climatological disaster, why not make as much money as possible now off as many people as possible instilling that fear? Um, and it's the same sort of like manipulation tactic that I see from people with the sort of like transing of kids, how the only reason that this is being pushed so much right now is I think two reasons. I think it's perversion. And I think it's the normalized, like horrific way that we have just like, you know, and I I think that I was probably part of this problem, but this idea that sort of like sex sells rather than, you know, uh, literature or scientific advancement or, you know, medicine and all of these wonderful things that we've really pushed over the last hundred years to evolve to a really great place in development um that now all of these bad actors one of my cats is about to try and jump on the desk don't you dare wonky he's gonna sneeze on us too i have so many pets i don't know if carl's told you that i have just like a load of pets i don't i don't know anything about your your animal friends oh yeah i'm like i'm the crazy cat lady for sure um get down wonky I always make fun of Bianca because she just got a cat. It's actually very cute. And I don't like to admit it um, because I'm not a cat person. But um, so I have to make fun of her. Everyone says they're not a cat person until, hey, dude. Okay. Okay. He just wants to get in the conversation. I I don't blame him. This one's my fame hall, really, more than anything. And there's another one in the door right there. Well, I always tell people, it's like, you know, if if you're a dog owner and you die, Mm -hmm. your dog will lay down next to you and die with you. If you're a cat owner and you die, your cat will wait for you to die and then start eating you. That's really, that's true. That's completely in ways, true. In some ways I respect, I respect it. I just don't trust them. See, like, just like this, uh, you know, they don't listen. Oh, come um, on. Yeah. Can't train them. Yeah. I've got so. to get like a spray bottle. You can't, you can't train them. Like yeah. John is absolutely, my John is absolutely convinced that he's trained um, one of the cats, Miss Bitch, but I don't believe that for a second. Um, but anyway, going back to the sort of like economy, no, no. Whole, um, how much, you know, there, there is clearly a fine line between issues that we need to address. Like mm-hmm. we do need to address as a macro, macro population, um, and the issues that are pushed because they make sort of like financial sense, mm-hmm. um, Newsmax obviously is not one of those organizations that I think cows down to the funding. They like don't cow down to advertisers, things like that. And that's something that, you know, for the last what year and a half that I've been 
like at least, you know, doing the Sunday debates and things like that. Um, it's something that I've really noticed is that a lot of the topics that, you know, as we said at the start of the show that maybe wouldn't get covered by other outlets always seem to be brought up by Newsmax. Um, but how do you kind of, how do you navigate that sort of gap between the sort of stories that need to be pushed because there's a need for the sort of financial side of things for things to keep rolling and the stories that need to be pushed because it's important important for them to be pushed or does that even like happen that often it actually does i mean it's a give and take and because you know i have my own show but i'm still part of an organization i'm part of a team i can't let my compulsions and my kind of own individual ideas overrun you know the greater good of the organization and there you know there there is pressure to um you know to answer your question kind of simply is I just stick to the facts you know mm-hmm. if not not try to get too emotional about these stories you 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 obviously do there's certain things I care more about than others but I I don't report something unless you know a lot of it's attributed to studies and other reporting that you know I don't get out to report very often anymore but I do have kind of a cache of journalists that I really do respect and admire. And, you know, you're always cross-referring to your sources, you two sources of attribution, the kind of the basic rules of journalism. Um, And I do try to be a little controversial, a little provocative. You got to kind of go in these areas sometimes. Um, But sometimes you do have to moderate your message for the greater good. And you just, you just, you just try to maintain your, you know, intellectual integrity and, um, you know, I think it's a challenge everyone has when you're not just an individual and you're part of an organization. You want to you want to be vo- you want to be an individual. You want to have your voice be heard, but you have to play on a team. And this is a team sport. And I think about a lot of times about, you know, if I say this, it may cause problems for somebody else. And so I shouldn't I shouldn't say it. So um, you just develop a feel for it. And then I, I, I kind of equate it to cooking or playing playing an instrument is, you know, you, you do it enough. You kind of get a feel for it and then you can really turn, kind of turn it in. You can, you know, you don't have to cook off a recipe or play off the sheet music. You can kind of play it by the heart. And then when you get to that point, I feel like you can really have a genuine conversation with somebody. And I remember early on in my career, you're so kind of adherent to the facts and you're, you're really kind of afraid to speak, but you get older, you learn more, you have some of that intrinsic knowledge as like, you know, as your base and you just feel more comfortable talking to people. And I was always told, um, even though I was a young man in a hurry by my mentors, slow down, learn the lessons. And even like in a literal sense, because I used to talk real fast on TV because I had so much information. What are you, you're like, John, you talk so fast, nobody can understand what you're saying. So just, it, you know, that that is like my overarching message for young people is slow down, enjoy it. You know, we're living longer. You have a lot more time to experience life. Take your time, learn lessons and, you know, grow you know grow from those lessons you don't you know i think there's so much pressure on young people nowadays to like just you know be you know i don't know the social media pressure i i have um a nephew in college and a niece who's um just about to graduate college and i talk to them about just the intense pressure they're under because of the social media stuff and um all the extracurricular activities and just the college admissions process now is just so completely out of control um partly because we've subsidized higher education so much mm-hmm. that the standards to get into some of these universities are so difficult, but the education isn't worth it. Yeah. And um, 
So there's a lot of pressure on these kids nowadays. I, I just, uh, you know, I just don't know how they do it. But my advice is just slow down, enjoy life, stop and smell the roses. Yeah. Just, yeah. Well, I mean, for young people, again, like it's just so much, it's so easy to make money off. Like I'm part of the millennial generation. I turned 30 this year. Uh, most of the people I work with are Gen Z. So they're sort of, you know, that sort of 21 to 25, 26 bracket. And, you know, at least from my lived experience, I think is a little bit different growing up in the UK, going to school out there. I have no idea of the academic process out here beyond the stuff that I used to work in, which was all at the PhD level, um, getting people through their uh, dissertations and their thesis and things like that. And I noticed when I was working in that field that there were definitely inherent limitations to the academic quality Um but there certainly isn't a lack of funding, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is interesting. It strikes me that one of the themes we've kind of pulled out of this conversation is the more money that goes into something, actually the worse that thing becomes. Like if you think about all the money that's being pushed into young people's social media advertising, that bleeds into mental health. Now there's so much money being made out of the mental health field and from you know trans surgeries and all of the stuff yeah. that goes in hand in hand with that even over to like the climate change stuff, right? All the money that goes in. Yeah, sure. Let, let people build in a floodplain. Why would you not? How much money is that going to bring in for the insurance companies who can then turn around and say, oh, we're not going to pay it off actually because you built in a floodplain. I mean, it just, you know, and I'm a capitalist. Like I am a hideous capitalist and I have huge arguments with my family who I love dearly, but like, you know, very left wing. Um, about my proclivities. And it was a huge part of me deciding to stay in the United States as this sort of like notion of capitalism. But like in your experience, looking at all of these different issues, and I think it's interesting because you, like me, you don't deal with just one particular problem. You deal with all of them because it's your job to inform the American public about them from a factual perspective. So I'm sure there's a lot of secondary trauma that comes into it for you as well, which isn't funny, but I laugh at really dark stuff. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's a gallows humor. It. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Like, you, you know, that's why I do the meme segment on Friday is because you just, you gotta, you gotta kind of cleanse yourself of the negativity. And sometimes kind of that gallows humor you, you, you hear about it with cops and soldiers when you talk to them on a very personal level, they have the best jokes because they see the worst stuff. And, and, and that's, you know, that's why you, when it comes to drama, you have the crying mask and the laughing mask, that's life. And, and, um, you know, we laugh about these things and they are kind of morbid, but, um, that's the only way you survive and you can yeah. kind of keep your sanity, um, so. is kind of, is trying to do that type of stuff. So anyway, um, but yeah. let's talk about the apocalypse, right? I mean, <laughs> Because this is, I'm interested in this because um, I was 15. My dad is a is a general contractor. He was doing some work in Mexico in the time, and I went with him to Mexico. And I went to the pyramids down there. I knew nothing. I mean, of course, we all knew about. We learned about the pyramids in Egypt. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about the pyramids in Mexico. So we do a tour, um, Teotihuacan. You know, people should yeah. definitely go there. And I remember our tour guide was telling us about how north, south, east, and west perfectly aligned with you know. And just like they are with the pyramids in Egypt, mm -hmm. and you learn about the, the the civilization that it just disappeared. And it's a massive, you know, massive complex of pyramids, and they don't know what happened to the people. And uh, it just is always really just, you know, piqued my interest. Oh, really? That's so yeah. cool. Um, well, I'm glad because you're... 
like this moment in time we're at right now is probably, God, it breaks my heart for Graham because he's been, you know, since like the, I think late eighties, early nineties, he first understood that there had obviously been these precursory civilizations. And obviously we know from history and the sort of scars left over from a lot of these civilizations that they existed, but we don't know precisely when, because carbon dating, I think is an inherently limited, uh, again, scientific tool. Um, Like we don't like, I love this, right? We don't actually know when the pyramids were built. And if we go by the uh, current paradigm, which is that they were built by the ancient Egyptians, then all of the other, other evidence from ancient Egypt suggests that the Egyptian civilization came into being at peak development and then declined as the years went on, which is like, that's not how any civilization has ever worked. Um, but sort of, you know, we're in this moment right now where there's a huge pop culture interest in this subject matter. And I think it, again, kind of like, you know, darkly but funnily um, comes hand in hand with this, you know, proliferation of doomsday rhetoric that comes through our social media. And everything is always about the end of the world. Everything's hyperbole. And I'm a, you know, please don't anyone think that I'm a hypocrite in this. I know that I'm part of that problem. Um, But it's sort of, I think as we go through this decade, I hope that, you know, firstly, no, no cataclysm hits, um, whether it be social or geological, but I would like to think that we can at least start establishing to what degree these previous civilizations had developed before us, why they developed before us, and then where they went, because, there's a lot more evidence to suggest that they were knocked out of the universe or this, you know, they were knocked out of our little small place in the universe by um, external factors rather than social. But we live in a very vulnerable social state right now. I don't know. Um, one of the questions, I mean. No, I think, I think, I think it's important to kind of, you know, because so much of what we do worry about is so frivolous in the day to day. When you think about, let's, you know, the, the dinosaurs, for example, whatever, that they were all walking on the on the earth and then a meteor hits and they're gone. And that could happen at any moment in our lives. And that's why, I, you know, I think, especially with conservatives, they tend to be more religious. They are more at peace with this idea. And when I, I think the value in learning about apocalypses, I think that's the proper pluralization, you, um, you have much more appreciation for the the fragility of life and you, you like you you appreciate life more knowing that you know i i have this conversation with people all the time especially producers when there's like some new scary trend this is happening and you're like there's three examples of this thing happening and you're like well you know let's look at st- statistics like you are way more likely to die in a car accident on your way home from that ever happening to you but somehow this becomes the, the news story mm-hmm. um you know I, I it's just people lose sight of what the real dangers are in their lives. And um, I, I think too, when people don't have other things, you know, loved ones, uh, a career they enjoy, pursuits, hobbies, other things, they'll find something to worry about. You know, they will focus on on bad stuff. And when um, going back to kind of one of the other things we talked about, as a culture, we are internalizing more stuff we're staying inside more we're we're we're, we think it's acceptable to have a facetime conversation as opposed to a one you know a real real human interaction there's no substitute for you know genuine human interaction 
And um, obviously you can't have that if you have an apocalypse. So, you know, people should, should, I think that's why that, that series on Netflix, Graham series was so popular is because we're, we're living through this stuff nowadays. It's like, Oh my God. Um, you know, the, the latest thing can kill you, whatever it is, you know, you, it's, but there are real scary things out there that people deal with all the time. And yeah. um, you, you gotta have a, you gotta have some sort of inner peace. Otherwise you're going to be like walking around all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like constantly terrified yeah I think it's like it's it's almost like it brought so much perspective um it's funny like I was very much like I remember my dad saying when I was really little he was just like yeah one day I'm gonna say something and a white van's gonna pull up outside and that'll be the last you see of me because they'll get rid of me kind of thing um and it's so funny now because I'm so on the other political spectrum and again from like a science like from just like a living out here perspective you know like I don't make any decisions without facts around them um except for pickles I hate pickles um that's you know my only dislike proper true preference that is complete bias I think that I can't justify with anything else but um no I think Graham's show it gave uh perspective the I mean the way the way I described it to John the other day like we were sitting down I was like well the thing is you're probably like the unless you're Ric Flair and you're gonna get struck by lightning be in a plane crash and have total organ failure and literally be up and dancing you know less than a year after all um all of those things uh your chances of suffering from any major catastrophe are actually pretty low Um, you know, going through more than one is almost unheard of. And so even though I have this kind of morbid fascination with, you know, uh, the apocalypse or like, you know, the sudden calamitous decline of our species, I think it definitely more comes from a place of, you know, what, wouldn't it be cool? The more I read about this, wouldn't it be cool to come up with like actual solutions to some of these threats that are coming towards us? But then the other side of it, which I think is far more fun and upbeat, um, is also the sort of, uh, like Hollywood hyperbole of it all. Um, you know, I love watching these disaster movies because it's, it's almost like getting to look inside of someone else's head and see Mm -hmm. their fears, I don't like scary things like, you know, haunting, paranormal, I don't like blood, anything like that. But, you know, your day after tomorrow's, um, what's another good one? Oh, you like The Walking, well, The Walking Dead is like, that that fringes for me. Oh, Independence Day, epic. And like, you know, I have debates with Carl Higby all the time, like, what is the best apocalypse? And he said before that he likes the zombie one. And I'm like, no way. He just likes the zombie one because he gets to use all his guns. I mean, I I can't blame him for that. I mean, that's a a natural (laughs) male urge um, just to mow down a bunch of soulless. Yeah. We all have fantasies about that one. Okay, so is that is that going to be your go? I don't know. Words? I don't, I don't no. know. That's a great question. I mean, you know, this we should put this in kind of the hollows of best questions. What what would be your ideal apocalypse? <laughs> um, you know, I was Bianca and I were just having this conversation today about what what do we think would be the worst way to die. Oh, um, gosh, that's even more morbid than well, me. Sorry, it came it came up. I you know in, out of this the earthquake in uh, Syria and Turkey because that to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would oh, be really worth, you know to be cru- like to be alive but to be crushed like inside a building people yeah. around you close to you but you can't reach them oh my oh, God. Oh, anyway, so um the I, well I, I tell you what the best kind of apocalypse i think would be the one where you go instantly right yeah right like just straight vaporization yeah yeah, yeah like, for sure 
if the nukes are going to come, I'm going to go outside and watch it and just, yeah. you know, I'm not going to go into it. You know, I'm just going to, this is going to be it. Yeah. My prayers. Hope I, you know, hope I've lived a good life and, you know, and, and, and wait for what the afterlife holds for me. Um, so like that. That, would be, that would be my preferred. Yeah. Uh, an oh my I think, I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. I mean, I'm to yeah. show everyone my pajamas is a fucking nightmare. Thank you. I love you. <gasps> Sorry. That's all right. I very rarely wear makeup during, I literally only put on makeup for Joe Pags, Newsmax, and then we got date night tonight and that's it. Like, otherwise I don't yeah. wear makeup or anything during the day and I'm always in my pajamas. So I apologize, but also not because it's my house. Yeah. Um, I, I'm yeah. your guest. So, you know, you make, you, you do you, Kay. I'll, I'll, you do you. It's, um, but yeah, I think like the going out instantaneously one is one of the best. Um, the best show I've ever seen about, an apocalypse or like comedy shows that one the last man on earth did you ever see that no i didn't it's again it's a comedy about like this just uh, it's i can't remember the actor's name but he basically just plays this like garbage human who just happened to be one of the people or like one of the last people to survive some horrendous virus actually so it's like instead of being a scary um show about the apocalypse and like a virus or like that other one utopia or there was one back in the day that wasn't a zombie one but was like a really popular virus one i can't remember what oh no i guess it wasn't zombies but the i am legend type thing okay yeah yeah like there there was an episode of um the twilight zone i watched one time as a kid and it was just so well done it was about (laughs) this guy he was a real big nerd all he all he liked to do was read he didn't like people he was very introverted and there actually was, um, I think it was a nuclear, and he was the only one that survived. He was actually just thrilled because he didn't like people, and he he loved to read, and he had all his books. And so the, it ended as he he shows up at a library, and he walks inside, and he's sitting on the steps of the library, and he drops his glasses and breaks them, and he can't, and he's, it ends, he's like, ah, I can't see. Oh, no. That's, see, that's one of my fears. Like, I wear glasses. Like, I can't see at all. You should get and- laid yeah, I can't see. I just like right now it's okay, but like I have my giant glasses, my giant dorky glasses. That's very, um, that's very in vogue these days. I, oh my gosh. I, see, I got them as a joke and then they've just become my regular. You're an icon. You're an influencer. No, everyone always says I look a lot more woke than I am. Like Jeff, my editor in chief at the Daily Caller, I can't remember how he said it verbatim, but he was just like, don't ever accuse Kay of being exactly what she looks like. And I was like, that's, that's pretty, that's, yeah, that's accurate. That's a compliment. I had a back, you know. Yeah. 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 And he's like, you know, he's like a big brother. He's like, you know, making sure that people aren't like, okay, he's got pink hair. She must be super liberal. No. Um, (laughs) Kay's got a nose ring. Yeah. Everyone from Wales does. But um, it's a Welsh thing, huh? It is. It's a Welsh. It's a Welsh female thing, and like I get a lot of I get a lot of shit for the nose ring. But I'm like, I took it out for years, and then I was just like, you know what? I don't care. I like it. I'm gonna put it back in. But anyway, enough about me and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, like the the apocalypse. Definitely losing my glasses is like the biggest fear. um if and when something ever happened on that kind of scale. I think the one that freaks me out the most. Have you ever heard of the Carrington event? No. So basically, the scariest stuff always have they always have the most benign names too. Right? Like, yeah. Like, event. It sounds like it sounds like a cocktail party. You're going to the Carrington <laughs> event this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like a 
fantasy Sounds like fun. What is it? Well, yeah. it's an apocalypse. It's an oh. apocalypse, straight up. But the craziest thing is, is like it literally can take, we could be sitting here right now, all the lights would go off in your office. You'd probably hear um, a bunch of the, uh, what are they called? Like the electrical cables. Yeah. All these like normal things in day-to-day life have completely different names where I'm from. So I forget what they're called out here. Like I was describing, I was like, can you put some stuff in the bin the other day? And Jack's like, there's a bin. Trash like, the trash can. can. <laughs> but um, so yeah, you could be sitting at your desk, uh, all the lights go out, um, your phone switches off, suddenly it's like not working. All the power lines start sort of like overheating and, you know, bursting and they start to shock. Same thing with cars. Every single piece of electrical equipment will overpower, burn out and die. And, you know, you'll probably be able, you could probably go outside with a toaster, not plugged in, put toast in it and have it ping up by the time this thing is done. All perfect. And it'll be the last time you ever have toast like that. And basically the way that these things happen um, is through giant geomagnetic solar storms. So we'll actually be going through one um, the weekend, like in the next, well, it started today. Um, and it'll be happening over the sort of weekend. Um, so what's the date today? It's like the 60th, it's the 16th yeah. of February. So whenever this comes out, who knows if it'll even come out if the storm gets that bad. Um, but basically all these, you know, um, it's like, it's solar filaments and it's, you know, that's where I, it kind of loses me um, in the science of it. It's just like very complicated, but, you know, you know the, space weather. The- Something that we do talk about sometimes, which is really scary, because it could have been in this balloon thing, is one of these electromagnetic pulse devices, which is a you know a nuclear weapon that just is detonated at a certain altitude and would wipe out our entire electrical grid. Part of me thinks that our concern and our fear and our you know all this apocalyptic stuff is a reminder to our primitive selves to completely not lose touch of our ability to survive. And that's one thing that I do need to work with my kids on is how to use a compass, Mm. you know, how to read a map. And it it may not be practical in today's world. We may never have an electromagnetic pulse device. They may never need an actual nap, a map. But um, I I mean, I just think these are like critical things in life. What if this stuff does happen? You know, I my. When I was a kid, my grandfather used to take me and my cousins into the woods and drop us in the woods with a map and a compass and tell us, he'd draw up, he's like, you're here and I'll be, and I'll meet you here and I'll see you in two hours. That's how long it will take you to walk there. So there are five of us, my cousins and I, and we were all under the age of 12. Amazing. Thought, we thought we were lost. We thought we were orienting in the woods. We thought, you know, we thought we were Lewis and Clark. Meanwhile, we're like 20 yards away watching us the whole time in case we ever got lost. Aww. But, you know, um, you know, the empowerment you feel by actually learning how to navigate off a map. I, I would like to pass that on to my kids. And I, you know, how to shoot a gun, how to um, clean a fish, mm-hmm. how to grow certain things. You know, these are, these are just, there's a, there's a great Instagram feed called save our sons. And it, there, he, he lists these things all the time, like critical life skills, basic financial skills, mm-hmm. um, how to change a tire, you know, these are things like we've got to get back to doing more of this stuff. And when we talk, like, if you look um, historically, when zombies have become popular, like this, it's 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 been at, at times when when groupthink starts to take over. The fifties, the the zombie movies that back then were kind of a response to the Red Scare. Mm-hmm. Um, and nowadays, yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that we see the popularity of zombies returning when so many people are are just like sheep and in, in a herd following 
doing what zombies do, not really being conscious and present in what's happening. So I think this is all a, a wake up call for the human civilization, human civilization to revert back to some of our basic instincts. Maybe that's why um, paleo is common. It's so popular now for, for our diets, but I, I, you know, human evolution, I guess can only go so far and we're kind of like going backwards now, it seems like. Well, when we're also creating AI and all of these robots, they're going to take all of these skills. I mean, this is, yeah, this is, I think this is like a wonderful way to kind of leave off today's episode. I actually think everything you just described is the hope and the lesson that comes out of this moment in history is, well, we've had 30 years plus of incredible technology at home technological usage. Um, I think that's the big difference, right? We've had technology and incredible technology for like a hundred years, only a hundred years, mind. I think a lot of people also are like, yeah, it's only been like, it's, you know, it's three generations. Um, If that, uh, I think seeing, seeing the sort of like magnitude of the threats it's almost like you can get to a point, and this is certainly where I've gotten to, where it almost becomes like static. Like the next, oh shit thing. I'm like, yeah, obviously that was going to happen. It shouldn't have happened, but me as an individual, I have no control of it, over it. All I can do is control the way that me and the people I love kind of survive through that. And if we can sort of shift mindsets, especially within younger generations, mm-hmm. as you so brilliantly put, back to that place of sustainable survival um not sustainable in that kind of co-opted way the the sort of left i think you know use that to kind of shame people like sustainable in such a way that we are the apex predator we are the alpha species on this planet and sorry but if we want to build a really nice beautiful house somewhere that you know we want to build it as long as it's safe and nature doesn't want to reclaim it we can go ahead and do that. Let's not. Anyway, I'm going to go off on a diatribe anyway about. No, I think yeah, there's 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 a balance. Yeah, um, we got to strike there, and it's most people aren't interested in balance. They're interested in having their own feelings reaffirmed, and yeah. So that's yeah. it's fascinating. So it is. time flew by, Kay. <laughs> Sorry. Time, the time just flew by. I know that was like so fast. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I feel like we could keep going. I've like, again, so many more questions and I yes. just, you know, I'll, uh, I don't know if I need to be necessarily like better prepared, but I definitely think that there's certain things that I just like really want to get out of like future conversations with you. Sure. I'm so excited to be able to watch your news reports in a whole different way now, John, knowing your motivation and how you shape the information you deliver. Um, it just, it just comes with so much heart. So thank you. I feel so lucky as like, you know, a former socialist, filthy job creating immigrant as I am um, to be in this position to have these conversations. So thank you. Um, where shall I direct people? You know, I always ask people out oh. social media, everything Where's the best. Yeah, I think that the best way, you know, you can go to um, Newsmax.com or just Google John Bachman Newsmax and my show will come up. Um, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, uh, not really Facebook, but Twitter and Instagram. You can find me on there. Um, I don't even know my handles off the top of my head. I'll but, put them uh, in the link. We'll link, yeah. it, we'll link it all together. Yeah. And um, yeah, reach out to me. I have, like, I, you know, a lot of stuff I love to talk about. Um, I do really enjoy the engagement with people who watch the show. That really, that's part of the fire that keeps me going. So um, I, you know, and, and these types of conversations with interesting people. So I appreciate you having me on, Kay. 
Oh, cool, man. Thanks so much. This is so nice. Oh, look at us being so nice. This is yeah, it's a mutual. It's a mutual adoration society, right? Yeah, yeah. I really like it. This is just better than therapy. <laughs> and cheaper. <laughs> oh, so much cheaper. Um, okay, well, I'm going to hit stop recording now. Okay, um, but for great. everyone listening at home, thanks for tuning in. Remember to check out Patreon, Substack, all the other places, blah, blah, blah. You know what? You know where everything is. I don't need to patronize you. Have a lovely day, though. Bye, Kay. Bye.